This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Fossil fuels may be back in favor in Washington, but clean power advocates know that a green energy revolution is unavoidable. We have to accept the fact that the world is changing, and Americans don't right now, we don't even realize how close we are to really being able to turn the corner on this. But green energy isn't just for high-tech entrepreneurs. Those that know the industry know that this is one of the greatest wealth-generating opportunities in the history of humanity, not just in our lifetime. And the more we invest in green energy, the cheaper it gets for everyone to do business. That's an enormous competitive advantage. And that fuels an economy because you've now removed the volatility associated with fossil fuel price. Energy revolution is happening. Up next on Climate One. What's happening in the green energy revolution? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Fossil fuels are in favor in Washington, D.C. these days, with new opportunities for coal mining and oil and gas drilling. But markets ultimately drive decisions, and green energy is slowly and surely becoming price competitive with brown energy. On today's show, We'll hear from three guests with stories of innovative companies and technologies that are advancing the clean energy economy. Emily Kirsch is co-founder and CEO of Powerhouse, which helps solar entrepreneurs with money and advice. James Redford is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and the son of actor Robert Redford. His new HBO film is titled Happening. And Gia Schneider is co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy, a startup that's harnessing the power of rivers. Here's our conversation about the green energy revolution. So Jamie Redford, uh, I've heard your dad tell the story about how growing up Yosemite really made an environmental connection for him. How about you growing up in the 70s uh, when solar energy was, was barely heard of? What, what shaped your environmental connection growing up as a kid? Well, both my parents were really active uh, in pointing towards solar energy as a viable alternative to fossil fuels. Uh, the, they weren't really talking about climate change in those days. Sure. It was more about the geopolitical uh, problems, and it was, it was about the thing that's still very real today, which is air pollution. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they, they put their money where their mouth uh, was um, at $78 a kilowatt hour in 1977 to heat a pool. Um, and it was, uh, it was, you know, my mother worked for the solar lobby and spent a lot of time flying back and forth between New York and D.C., and, um, you know, I, if, if they were here, they would both, uh, you know, s sort of reflect back wistfully at that time, feeling like essentially that they were just a little ahead of the curve in their passion, that economically speaking, it still had a ways to go. And, of course, um, you know, those of us in our 50s all remember uh, President Reagan uh, ripping the solar panels off the White House in 1980, and that moment became a very strong symbol of sort of the closing of the door of the first wave of innovation uh, that was clearly not going to get any boost from the, the federal government. So things have changed, though. 
Emily Kirsch, you followed an unusual path growing up in the Bay Area. Most of your friends went to the, uh, the Ivies. You went to a state school, and then you met your first boss. Yeah, so I was born here in San Francisco and raised in Marin. And after high school, unlike most of my friends that were going to some of the top schools in the country, I decided to travel the world and moved to Costa Rica to live on an off-grid, uh, solar-powered chocolate and coffee farm, which was absolutely heaven. Uh, and it was my first exposure to the solar industry. Um, the entire farm was solar-powered, uh, lead-acid batteries provide storage so that we had electricity at night. And that's when I first fell in love with renewable energy. And when I moved back to the Bay Area, I went to San Francisco State University. And while I was in school, I met my first who, who, the man who became my first boss, Van Jones, who worked for President Obama as an advisor and is now doing political commentary on CNN and has really been a voice of reason for us through uh, the political transition. So uh, working with Van was an incredible experience. I was working in workforce development, uh, in local climate policy and state ballot initiatives. And while I loved it, government bureaucracy uh, is not really the most exciting thing when you're an entrepreneur at heart. And so, uh, but through Van, I met a startup called Mosaic, who I had the pleasure of working with uh, in Oakland. And that inspired me to work with many renewable energy entrepreneurs. And that's what we do at Powerhouse. And there was a famous person that, that did some uh, funding quietly for Mosaic. Tell us that story briefly. Sure. So um, I'm sure everyone in the room knows Prince, the singer who passed away last year. And Prince was uh, not just a musical icon, but he was also an incredible philanthropist, and he was very humble about his philanthropy. He absolutely required that nobody know about the philanthropic work that he did while he was alive. And because of his friendship with Van Jones, uh, he asked what he could do to support communities in Oakland, and Van suggested that Prince help uh, communities community-based organizations who otherwise couldn't finance solar projects get the capital to make those projects happen. And so Prince provided a grant of a quarter million dollars to help nonprofits and community-based organizations in Oakland go solar. And those organizations were getting solar on the roof without even knowing that the, the money for those systems was in part coming from Prince. So they're very proud to have those systems now. Rockstar solar. Uh, Gia Schneider, when you were seven years old, you were uh, going down a river fishing in Colorado. And tell us what happened. Uh, yeah, so it, well, I uh, was born and raised in Texas, and every year, for probably from the time I was four until I went to college, we would go on a fishing trip for a couple of weeks in uh, southern Colorado. Um, and uh, what was fascinating, it, that, that probably inspired my love of water and my love of what, what I'm doing today. And uh, we, uh, we had this really interesting opportunity to observe two um, different streams in the same overall watershed. Um, one was a wilderness area and not grazed, and the other was managed and grazed. It was federal land, but, but, um, but leased for grazing. And, uh, in, and we just had kind of easy contrast because on the grazed land, beavers were completely removed from that particular stream or branch of, I guess, the, the river. And on the one that was wilderness, you had lots of beaver dams. And, uh, and, and the difference in biodiversity, the difference in fish populations, the difference in insects and, and life in general was just, you know, was, was unavoidable. You just, you just kind of could see it right away, right? And, and certainly you would realize it when you're fishing because um, you'd catch fish in one place and you wouldn't catch <laughs> fish in the other. So kind of 
very, very simple proof. But um, that for me was a, was a start to, to where I am today. And now you're emulating beavers in a sense. Yeah. That are trying to, yeah, really. You have a company that's trying to learn from beavers. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, hydro, hydropower is an energy source, renewable energy source that has been around for a long time, probably 100 years. And when we think about uh, transitioning our energy grid to a carbon-free um, grid eventually, uh, that involves uh, uh, providing a quality of energy, um, a, a reliability to the energy. So when you turn on your light switch, the, the lights come on, that is definitely bolstered and supported by a fossil fuel-backed grid today. And in the United States, we have you know, several hundred gigawatts of thermal fossil generation that that do help to provide a number of grid services. So the challenge becomes, how do we have a graceful transition? And what was interesting to me is that hydro potentially could do that if we could actually find a way to develop it more sustainably. And, and so that's kind of where the idea really started was, it was can we actually take some lessons learned and, and, and think about you know, biomimicry or bioengineering or biodesign, um, take lessons learned from nature's engineers and, uh, and apply that uh, to rethinking how we would approach hydropower. We'll talk about big dams and little dams in a, in a little bit. Uh, James Redford, in happening, your documentary on HPO, uh, there's a story of Nevada. So there's been a fascinating story unfolding in Nevada where we had businesses backed by billionaire Elon Musk, and the other side was businesses backed by billionaire Warren Buffett. They, they clash, and it's quite a dramatic story. So, and that's kind of a key part of your documentary. So tell us sort of the, that, walk us through that story. Well, I think you have to start with the unique uh, fact that Nevada, by legislation, has an energy monopoly, Nevada Energy. It's the single state-approved utility by law there to be a monopoly. There are no utility competitors in Nevada currently. So, and that's been that way for over a century. And, you know, it's really smart if you're a capitalist and you really want to make a lot of money, then own the extraction, own the transportation, own the burning and the transmission, and you're going to be very wealthy. And that's pretty much the way it's worked in Nevada for many, many years. And then along comes um, solar and, and wind, and, and mainly in Nevada, solar, of course. But solar arises initially as this cute thing that's easy to greenwash, that uh, the existing utilities can uh, pet and approve. And uh, initially, that's the case. But as it starts to scale, and it has, particularly with rooftop solar, um, that starts to draw customers away from the utility company and change the rates that they're used to because of the way uh, rooftop companies and rooftop individuals, who have their, there's two ways. One, you can lease them through a company, through a third party, or you can own them. And that's another groundbreaking thing. Both those things went into full play in Nevada, and what you saw eventually was the utility commission that's supposed to represent the citizens of Nevada. Um, very curiously and strangely, changing um, the rate structures in Nevada uh, in a way that pretty much drove the rooftop solar industry out of the state. So I was there uh, as that was being um, you know, finalized in place. It was going to cost thousands of jobs. It was going to set the state back considerably uh, in terms of a lot of economic growth. Um, however, um, over the next two years, uh, the legislature came back and many of the lawmakers who saw what the commissioners did, which is a state-appointed, governor-appointed commission, disagreed with, with the commission. 
And uh, in fact, just this year, there have been some uh, major legislative victories in Nevada all around renewable energy. Um, and in fact, reverse this obnoxious decision made by the Nevada Utilities Commission to the favor of rooftops. So, and there were a number of other uh, pieces of legislature that passed as well. Now, some of them were vetoed by the governor. Um, but this so is a not Republican over. governor, uh, Brian Sandoval, Republican governor. And then when he announced this, uh, he called it a national model. So the politics are really interesting there, that we have Republican legislators, Republican governor coming back to defend solar after it had been kicked down. Well, who doesn't want Elon Musk making all of his fun stuff in their state, right? I mean, wouldn't, who doesn't? And he's there. And the Gigafactory is one of the largest man-made structures on planet Earth. And that, that translates to tax revenue, it translates to jobs, it translates to many things. But then you've also got casinos um, who, who are now trying to sort of reflect the values of their customers, and clearly there's been a demonstration that people want clean energy, and a lot of corporations are feeling pressure to deliver uh, the goods in that way to their constituents and their customers. Then you have a lot of other companies that are moving into Nevada because it's a very tax-friendly place to do business. Um, and they take a look at things and say, well, we need some renewable, we need renewable energy. You know, I mean, what are you guys doing here? So there's a, there's a very strong business argument to be friendly towards renewables, particularly the state that has more sunshine than any other state in our country. So pretty soon when you go to Nevada and pull that slot machine or spin that roulette wheel, you'll be running solar power. It's got to kind of... There are many forms of green. <laughs> You're listening to a Climate One conversation about what's happening in green energy. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to Emily Kirsch, co-founder and CEO of Powerhouse, James Redford, director of the new HBO film Happening, and Gia Schneider co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Gia Schneider, how much can Trump stop this train? You know, there's a lot going on with the federal government. Can that, what's happening at the federal level, slow the type of green energy that we're talking about? Uh, I think that we have, uh, I think that overall the industry has made such strides coming down the cost curve over the last decade in particular. And um, on solar and on wind. Um, I'll give a specific example actually on wind, uh, where wind capacity factors, so, so the, uh, the amount of time on an average year that a wind turbine is running and generating electricity, whereas 10 years ago that might have been in the 30% of, of the year, um, that is now almost approaching 50%, which actually puts wind at a capacity factor basis relatively competitive with hydro. And in addition, wind has gotten has become very cost effective. And so, for example, in Texas, wind is now the cheapest source of energy. And there are a lot of things driving that. There's there's scale. So so now manufacturing capacity exists. There's a whole yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, lessons learned, and people understand how to make and build, install, and operate uh, all of these systems. And so, so I think that the the economic rationale. Um, exists now and 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 the the arguments in the past that it was you know too expensive or more expensive um, I just I really think the 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 economics 
say otherwise. <laughs> the, numbers, the numbers say otherwise now. Um, and in addition, when we think about creating jobs and, and how, we, how we create an economy that it can actually grow going forward, you know, there, is, there is a great amount of success today, but an enormous amount more to grow going forward. Um, so. I think I want to pick up something you mentioned, which is a production versus extraction. When fossil fuels are extracted, they're burned, and then the next stuff is deeper, further away, harder to find, more expensive to get at. Yeah. When renewable energy is made, it's manufacturing that the, the next one made is cheaper than the last one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, to me, the thing that's really interesting in the, in the global context is actually that, that if, you know, from a... U.S. perspective and a U.S. first perspective, we should actually want to come down the cost curve on renewables as quickly as we can, because if we can drive the variable fuel cost out of one of the big cost drivers in our economy, right, in, in generating economic growth, energy is a core component of that. So if we can actually transition to a point where, you know, our, you know, long-term cost of an additional electron is, you know, $10, $20 a megawatt hour is, is, is very low, is just the 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 averaged out capital cost of building the next marginal plant or wind turbine or solar panel or hydro turbine, then that's an enormous competitive advantage. Uh, and, and that fuels an economy because you've now removed the volatility associated with fossil fuel price. Emily Kirsch, how about you? Can federal policy, this revival of fossil fuels, is that putting a damper or creating some uncertainty for clean energy investors? It can slow us down, but it can't stop us. Uh, from a job standpoint, the solar industry alone now employs more people than Google, Apple, and Facebook combined. Um, in, in the US, renewable energy is, is big business in a good way. Um, Google, Apple, Facebook, and now Salesforce and JP Morgan all have 100% renewable energy commitments. So when business is on board, when we're creating jobs, the industry is unstoppable. And there are things that can be done to, to help us or slow it down at the state and federal level. But um, the entrepreneurs that we work with every day, we're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives. And this transition is going to happen in our lifetime. James Edford, though, there's still the perception and the reality, has been the reality, that uh, renewable energy, electric cars, solar panels are for coastal elites and usually white people who live on the coast. Uh, is it becoming more affordable and accessible to people who are not you know, in certain income brackets and zip codes? Yeah. You know, I think one of the most encouraging things for me is that as the cost of the technology comes down is you have more choices in terms of what kind of models do you embrace in order to create renewable energy as a source of energy. So, for instance, here in the Bay Area in Marin County, just over the bridge, um, there's an organization called Marin Clean Energy, which is a community aggregate choice entity that basically acts as a, as a public utility and an alternative to Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the private utility in Northern California, that goes out and buys for the residents of Marin County and seven other Northern California cities, goes out and buys them wind power um, and solar power and brings it onto the grid um, at a price that's completely competitive with PG&E, and that's scaling up. Right now they have, uh, you know, over 250,000 people are being served clean energy through this aggregate of communities that they buy for. And that's happening and across the country. That's ha and it started there, and now there's dozens across the country. So you don't have to just have a huge roof with the south face and, 
you know, lots of dough for it to work. There's, there's, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of states are now looking at creating urban gardens that are solar gardens. That, and for instance, even in New York, there's a developer in Brooklyn that's creating a, a you know, and this is, this is a, um, a low-income housing development that's going to be completely contained with its own storage, which is, of course, the holy grail. I mean, if you can make your energy and store it yourself and manage your own energy source, um, you're really getting somewhere. And so this is happening. As, as Emily says, it's, it's remarkable. I'm sure uh, you know, we'll look back someday at this ex extraordinary moment in time, much the way people who worked with uh, the, you know, the Internet in the early 90s who could see it all coming, but none of it, none, the rest of us didn't, right? So this is the view you have if you're sitting here right now. Uh, a lot's going to change. Emily Kirsch, some people who've uh, invested in uh, clean energy over the years, a lot of people got burned investing in solar uh, long ago because a lot of companies have gone bust. Solyndra, one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, Sun Edison went, went bust. Um, if someone wants to invest in clean energy and not lose all their money and not go to the green casinos in Las Vegas, what can they do? Yeah, it's a good question. So a lot of investors, to their credit, did participate in the industry in 2008, and a lot of investors invested in hardware that, like Solyndra's uh, technology, that didn't pan out, and so a lot of investors left. Uh, and so, uh, as one of the leading clean tech investors in the country, Nancy Fund, with DBL Investors, based here in San Francisco, says the tourists are gone, meaning those funds that did participate in the clean energy and got burned and are out, they're gone. But there is an incredibly strong contingency of venture capitalists, angel investors uh, in the Bay Area and throughout the country who, who know that this industry is, that the success of this industry is inevitable. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimate, estimates that by 2040, uh, the entire global solar market represents a $3.7 trillion industry, 2.2 trillion of that in distributed systems, meaning on our homes and hospitals and schools, and a trillion of that in emerging markets. So those that know the industry know that this is one of the greatest wealth generating opportunities in the history of humanity, not just in our lifetime. Um, and those that are savvy enough to participate in it are going to reap the benefits of it. And at Powerhouse, we invest in startups at the very early stage. So we call ourselves a pre-seed investor, meaning um, when you have a prototype and you're just getting started, you can build your business at Powerhouse and we'll connect you um, with some initial capital, but more importantly, the network that we've built to help you succeed. So people come to you with a napkin and say, it's a nice napkin, but <laughs> nice napkin. napkin. Yeah. <laughs> but how about retail investors? That's what you talked about. Those are people, professional investors. How about people who have a 401k, who want to put their money where their mouth is? You know, can they invest in mutual funds, publicly traded things right now that, that are green to be part of this, this wealth creation that you're talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's something that all of us can do for those of us that, that are active and have retirement accounts is to demand that, that those are fossil free, that those are carbon free. A lot of us inadvertently have our money in weapons and fossil fuel and cigarettes and things that we, you know, many of us do not believe in. And so, um, so I think, not I think, I know that things change when consumers demand that they change. Uh, and we're seeing incredible divestments uh, in fossil fuels from university endowments and pension funds and a move to renewables. And it is still early. There is no perfect alternative for people to turn to now. And that's why entrepreneurship is so important because no one heard of, very few people heard of Elon Musk 20, 25 years ago, and now because of him, everyone knows about electric vehicles and about solar. Uh, and so we're going to need many more Elon Musks to try and to apply their skills and their talents to this industry in order for us to succeed and in order for everyday people to have a place to put their money that they feel great about.
you're just joining us, we're talking about clean energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Emily Kirsch is with Powerhouse. We also have James Redford, the filmmaker, and Gia Schneider with the water startup Natel Energy. So Gia Schneider, tell us a little bit about um, micro dams. People think of dams as being carbon-free electricity. That's good, right? They're relatively clean as long as you didn't used to live on the part that was flooded for the dam to be created. Uh, so there's kind of bad big dams and good small little dams. Is that yeah, so our approach was to um, take hydro distributed. So if you think about conventional hydro, if you say if you say hydropower, you generally are thinking of things like Grand Coulee or Hoover Dam, right? Um, or Three Gorges in China, the very, very massive end of the scale. Um, and uh, our insight was to say, well, instead of building a large dam, which is trying to to basically capture all of the energy drop in one big, gigantic hundreds of foot tall step, why don't we walk down the stairs and go distributed? Similar, you know, following, following again the model that we have in wind and solar, which are much more distributed sources and, uh, and have achieved scale by standardizing the modules and then making a lot of them. Hydro, old school hydro, is very custom and very big, right? So the idea was we wanna go standardize, modular, and distributed. To give you a feel for what a project looks like and kind of touch back on an earlier point of like, how does this apply to um, if I'm a, a farmer or rancher relying on irrigation, for example, to, because that's one of our important first markets where um, uh, by, by developing technology that can go into distributed water systems, one of the first places we start is actually retrofitting existing water infrastructure. Um, the Western U.S. in general uh, has a lot of managed water systems that support our drinking water here <laughs> um, and also support a lot of agricultural activity across the entire Should world. We made a whole film about that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of, uh, what our, one of our very, very first projects up in, uh, uh, in Central Oregon was uh, actually with an, in partnership with an irrigation district and we're working with a number of irrigation districts across the West right now that enables them to, um, to just like if I'm a farmer that has land and I want to uh, work with a developer to put up a wind farm or a solar farm, mm -hmm. if I'm an irrigation district, I can similarly work with a developer now to actually turn my existing irrigation canal and the, particularly the drop structures in those, in those existing canals into a distributed hydropower plant. And, uh, and that now generates revenue for that irrigation district to help make other on-system improvements, uh, provide better water, better support overall for the farmers that rely on that water in that particular area. Um, and in, in particular, one of the things we find really interesting, which ties back kind of to the water side of it, is that that additional revenue, where it can then support efficiency improvements on the irrigation side, actually ends up potentially generating environmental benefits because that then can allow the irrigation district to leave more water in stream. Because if I'm able to make my system more efficient, use less water on, on system, and ultimately uh, leave that water in, in stream, but yet, you know, generate more revenue, deliver the same water service to, to the farmers, that kind of encapsulates the first wave of what we're trying to do. Um, some of the next stuff that we're focused on is there's 80,000 non-power dams in the U.S., existing non-power dams in the U.S. There's a lot of existing water infrastructure. Not all of that we think is appropriate to develop hydropower on. Um, there are a lot of old, unsafe, environmentally terrible uh, dams that you know, are targeted for removal and should be removed, but there also are a good chunk of them that make sense that they're you know, safe, well-maintained, they function there for another purpose, but they're just too small. <laughs> they're too small in nature to have put hydropower on them with conventional technology. So that's kind of the next step.
Uh, James Redford, one of the things that we haven't talked about, electric vehicles, you know, obviously a lot of this electricity is being generated from streams or wind or solar. EVs been talked about for, for a long time. There's a lot of talk now about the Chevy Bolt, the Tesla Model 3, kind of making that accessible to mainstream. Um, is that for real or is that still out of reach? Well, uh, it's, let's start with the truth. Still a niche. Big truth, which is it's just a really good car. Now you start driving an electric car, and it's hard to go back. So that's all great. And they're fun. Um, they're fast. They're zippy. Yeah. It's and and that again, um, uh, thanks to Elon Musk, who understood that early on, to come in with the the hot and sexy stuff, and work his way down to that was just brilliant marketing to create that mystique and take advantage of the performance to create that demand by, from the customer. That's not about saving the planet. It's about having an awesome car. And the other stuff is really good too, right? So he, yeah. it's no accident that he's not pushing the greeny enviro thing. He's just pushing a better car. But the problem is for me um, with electric cars is it, it doesn't end there because they're only as good as the electricity that they use. So, you know, for me um, living across the bridge in, the, in a place that just by default supplies 50% clean energy to everybody that lives in my county, it's a good idea to have an electric car. But there are other places in, um, you know, in the, on, on the East Coast, in the, in the sort of coal the, the Middle Eastern coal, you know, uh, where, you know, getting an electric car may be doing absolutely nothing for the environment, but you're still going to want one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the key thing. But electric cars gradually get cleaner over time as the grid gets cleaner uh, and the gasoline cars, not so much. And Lee Kirsch, your thoughts on EVs. I don't, I don't know if you touch on EVs. You certainly invest in companies that are kind of electrifying things that can feed into EVs. Yeah. You know, they've been you know, slow coming for a long time. They're still only what 2% of sales, right? We like to talk about them, but still, it's not mainstream yet in America. Not yet, but again, that transition will happen in our lifetime, both to electric vehicles, but also autonomous vehicles that are going to be powered by clean electricity. Um, in California last year, 13% of all of the electricity in the state was generated by solar. So as we clean the grid and clean our energy production, that electric vehicle, you're going to feel better and better about knowing that it has a cleaner and cleaner source. Going to go to our lightning round and ask uh, some brief questions of association for our guests here at Climate One, Emily Kirsch, James Redford, and Gia Schneider. I'll just mention something, and you tell me what comes to your mind unfiltered. No, don't matter this is what dangerous. anyone thinks. Yeah, this is dangerous and yeah. fun. That's why we like to like to do this. Uh, first, for Gia Schneider, energy coming from ocean tides and currents. Uh, I think that there's, I mean, there's a, there's an immense amount of energy. So brief, brief question, like first word that pops into your mind. So hard, hard, <laughs> pipe dream. Emily Kirsch, I, nuclear power. Don't need it when we have solar. James Redford, the Chevy Bolt. I don't have one. <laughs> Emily Kirsch, energy secretary, Rick Perry. Uh, you can't see if you're listening, but my eyes just uh, rolled. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I roll emoji. That's what yes, that was. I roll okay. emoji. <laughs> okay. James Redford, ExxonMobil. Uh, boy, they missed the boat. But they did advocate to stay in the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah. Gia Schneider, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. You used to work on Wall Street. Tough job on tax reform. It's, yeah. Tough job on tax reform. <laughs> uh, Emily Kirsch, Volkswagen. <laughs> Indifferent. 
indifferent. Uh, of course, they got caught for, for uh, cheating on their air regulations. Um, Gia Schneider, GMO salmon. A lot of questions. And uh, last one for James Redford, solar-powered adult toys. <laughs> how, how adult? <laughs> I was thinking of drones. I don't know what you were thinking about. All right, let's give a round to them for allow, getting oh. through that. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation about innovations in green energy. This is Climate One. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the green energy revolution with Emily Kirsch, co-founder and CEO of Powerhouse, James Redford, director of the new HBO film Happening, and Gia Schneider, co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy. Here's Greg. James Redford, fires, floods, droughts, a lot of the things that scientists have been warning us about are happening. You, this was very personal for you. As we record this, your son just drove and got out of Florida as Irma's barreling down on that state. So your reflection on all these things that have happened in the summer and fall of 2017. Well, I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, um, there's going to be a moment in 10 years from now where within the same week we're going to have two major hurricanes assaulting uh, the lower 48. But we're at the same time, simultaneous to that, we're going to have a massive wildfires as well as record-breaking heat waves all within a two-week span. I would have thought, well, if that actually happened, of course, by then the entire world would embrace the fact that climate change is not only real, but we'd be doing everything to stop it because, come on. So the problem for me is... Um, I don't think there is going to be a magic moment where we finally decide. I think, I think the denial and the, um, the indifference, uh, the stubborn sort of, uh, the, and that is, is a lot of that's tied. Most people feel like it, it's a hopeless situation, but it's not. I mean, we have to accept the fact that the world is changing. That's the truth. That's just the truth. And if we don't get on board and start to manage the responsibility of that change and do our best to take care of it, because it's changing, but we have to do our best or we're not right now. We're just letting it change. You mentioned denial. There's something at Yale called the Six Americas, and they, they surveyed America about public opinion about climate change. And denials, people, it goes from alarmed to concerned to doubtful to disengaged. And then there's the dismissive. Dismissive is the your person we all know who says it ain't happening. Al Gore made it up. It's climate's always changing, et cetera. But those people are a small part of it. James River, I think a bigger part is the people who know it's happening, but you touched on it. They don't think they can affect meaningful change, that it's hopeless. So why should I sacrifice my lifestyle or comfort? You also have this weird thing where you think of, of climate change as this global thing and think if it was a sci-fi movie and there were aliens coming to change our planet. And, or North and, Korea was doing know, it, we'd be And fighting. oh my God, this is, a, this is a global crisis, right? Right. Um, and what's, what's, how are we going to fight back? Renewable energy. It's like for people, it, it doesn't have that drama, it doesn't evoke something really exciting and dramatic in a way that captures people's imagination. But nonetheless, it is our best weapon. And Americans don't right now, we don't even realize how close we are to really being able to turn the corner on this. The economics are now there. So this is a messaging thing. It's why I made this movie. I just felt like, wow, people don't realize 
we're right there right now with what we have tech, with technology. And most people don't know it or accept it. It's just not exciting enough to them. But, so that was my task. To make, uh, yeah, to make uh, uh, wind turbines as uh, powerful as lightsabers or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, uh, yeah, maybe they should be painted or something. I don't know. Gia Schneider, you grew up in Texas. Uh, you go, if you go back there, contact people. I don't know if you've had contact with any people uh, after Harvey. Uh, what's it like to have this climate conversation in a state like that? Yeah, I grew up in Texas, and my, my brother actually and his uh, older brother and his family live in uh, near Houston. And you know, so for me, it was an interest. You know, they they were able to stay in their home, and you know, fortunately, were were able to to be safe through it all. Um, but it it is it, it was. Any changes of opinion or insight by people? Uh, so what I've found, and, and, and this is actually a little bit broader than just Texas, but more drawing from the group of, of what I would say farmers, ranchers, irrigators, et cetera, that, that I interface with, um, is that people who deal with water know climate's changing, bottom line. Like their water patterns are different. And as one example, also this year um, with Oroville, it's, it's interesting because the county in which Oroville... This uh, was a dam that almost, the, one of the tallest dams in the country that almost failed in California. Exactly. Earlier this year, that county had, had in this year, you know, earlier in the year during the Oroville flood, they... Uh, had to evacuate because of flood risk and dam, dam failure uh, risk, potentially. And then in June, we transitioned so abruptly to a, to a pretty hot dry spell, and there was a big fire that broke out in that county again, and a whole huge number of people also had to evacuate. So 80% of the population of this one county had to evacuate this year, either due to flood risk or to fire risk. And in June, when that fire was happening, there were different parts of that county that were still under flood risk and other parts that were under fire risk at the exact same time. And... To me, that like crystallizes you know, the, the point around what the increased variability means at a personal level right, to, to people who are then affected very suddenly um, and repeatedly. Um, but to come back to the point about, around water, so I, so I think that anybody who deals with water knows that things are changing. Um, the challenge is, is that making the transition from an infrastructure perspective is something that, that isn't like a lightsaber, right? It's kind of diligent work, you know, brick by brick, if you will, or, or system by system, making changes. So I have a great deal of optimism because I know, you know, similarly, I think to Emily and, and other folks in the industry that um, we, we have the solutions and we are getting traction in deploying them um, because they make economic sense and people, more and more people understand that and they can just look at the dollars and make decisions that way. Um, I think as individuals, the challenge becomes uh, how to think about my choices as an individual in a way that actually can be meaningful, right? And I face that every day, you know, even in packaging, for example, right? Like there's so many things that consume lots of resources that contribute overall to the overall impact that we have on our climate, and and it's hard. So I'm not gonna, I, I don't, I can't sugarcoat it is, that. It is, hard. it is. I recently met a person <laughs> who is a professor in Canada who's made a pledge to not use any single-use plastics. So he makes his own deodorant, puts it on with a chopstick, and think about how he offered to send me the recipe. I'll share it with you if you like. Uh, get that right consistency. I can't quite, you know, I can't quite go there. But you think about all the single-use plastic in your life, that yogurt container, that takeout food container, all that sort of stuff, all, most of it made by petroleum, some of it made by corn, which may be better, may be worse. Uh, James Redford, you know, individual action, you know, you ever find the self that like, oh, well, I made a movie about climate change so I can take that extra flight because we have this 
phenomenon where you go to the gym, then you can have that dessert, right? You feel yeah. like you got a little bit of license. I was good, so now I can be bad. That's okay. Well, look, I mean, if there isn't room in this dialogue for hypocrites like myself, then there's no <laughs> point in having it. I mean, really, I mean, this, this idea that fighting climate change is only for the, the environmental purist is, is a problem. Yeah. I mean, because when you do something good, um, you're doing something good. And, you know, it's, it's better to do something than nothing. And I think that's part of the problem with, with the storytelling around climate change and, and clean energy is that it's been somehow positioned as something that only the liberal green elites can, can partake in and discuss when, in fact, who's making it happen on the ground and bringing it to scale? That's not who's doing it. I mean, you've got a mayor in Georgetown, Texas, right in the middle of, heart, of oil country. It's the second town in this, in this nation to go 100% wind power. Um, and he's and, very proud of it, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was based on taking care of his community and doing the right economic thing. Um, and, then, and then beyond that, I think one of the concerns for me too is there's this, there's this tendency as you think about new infrastructure and bringing renewables into communities and lead standard, which is excellence in mm -hmm. green building. Energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. That can also get then caught up in gentrification, which is a whole other topic we probably don't have time to go into here. but. You know, the, the, the idea that this needs to be embraced um, both at the community level um, by everybody. And you need to look at it from a systems-wide level, both at the individual point to that point. On the individual point, turn down your water heater. It's if everybody in this country just went out in their garage or into their closet and turned on the water heater, you'd make a massive difference. Just these little things, if they scale, they make a huge difference in energy demand. On that note, if I could add, um, so Paul Hawking has a new book um, called Project Drawdown, and it came about because he was at the International Paris, um, the climate negotiations, all the top climate negotiators from around the world, and he wanted to know what are the top five things that you can do to actually address climate change and address global warming, and so he asked each of them separately, and they each said something different. And so he said, wait a minute, we need, we need, we need some quantitative evidence for what is actually going to address global warming. And um, the top things, uh, want, the first one is uh, addressing the pollutants from refrigerants, not your expected number one polluter. Um, the second thing that we can do is maintain rainforests. Um, uh, third, address food waste. Um, and the fourth, because I don't remember the fifth, um, but the fourth is a plant-rich diet which means for the global north, we need to reduce meat consumption and the global south, protein consumption actually needs to increase. Um, and, and actually, I think one of the fifth or one of the top five, if you combine two, you get the first one. To address global warming and climate change, if you combine these two, it is the most impactful thing you can do to address global warming, and that is girls' education and family planning. Yeah. Those two things combined will do more to address climate change around the world than anything else. And so as we talk about recycling and geothermal and solar, those are all important. I live for it. And let's focus on what's actually going to get the job done. We're talking about clean energy at Climate One with Gia Schneider, CEO of Natel Energy, James Redford, who made the new documentary film Happening, and Emily Kirsch, CEO of Powerhouse, which advises startup companies on clean energy. We're going to go to audience questions and invite you to join us with one one-part commenter question. Welcome to Hi. Climate One. Hi, um, I am from Marin, and I brought two Marin High School students with me. And my question is about education. I think many of you mentioned that this as an emerging industry is going to demand many employees. And we have 100 hours of code recognizing the opportunity 
for kids to engage their passion in new opportunity for future jobs. What does 100 hours of solar energy look like? How do you get into the high schools and into middle schools in a way that can help direct people towards new careers? And I think I'll start directing my question at Emily, who is also from that high school yeah. Yeah. culture. Uh, yeah. Um, it's such a good question. I'd say the fact that they are doing 100 hours of, of code and learning to code, that is solar. So at Powerhouse, we don't invest in hardware. Um, hardware is, is obviously essential to this transition happening, but the price of panels alone has gone down 90% in the past five years. So if you looked at solar five years ago, look at it again, because the price of panels has gone down 90%. So our role at Powerhouse is to invest in entrepreneurs that are working on the software side of renewable energy. So if they're getting code experience, 90% of the entrepreneurs in Powerhouse are software developers, um, and they're, they're writing code and developing algorithms to make this transition to distributed energy and storage and modernizing the grid possible. Um, and so I would say, I think if you're able to overlay a, a climate, um, climate not even climate education, just renewable energy education over that software development skills, that's, that's kind of the golden... Uh, ticket to make this transition possible. And I'll say, not only do we need, you mentioned employees, we absolutely need employees. In the US, there are now over 260,000 employees just in solar. Um, wind technician is the fastest growing job in the country in red states. There is more wind in red states than there is anywhere on the left coast. So, um, but, but we don't just need employees and workers, we need entrepreneurs. And we especially need entrepreneurs that don't fit what people think of when you think of a traditional entrepreneur. So unfortunately in the US, 90% of venture capitalists are both white and male. 4% uh, of venture capital funding goes to women, less than 1% to people of color. We are missing an incredible opportunity to make this transition happen in a way that reflects the diversity and the talents of this country. There's a great McKinsey study from 2015 called Why Diversity Matters, and it shows that there's a direct correlation between profit and racial and ethnic diversity in companies. So Point being, um, we need more entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs that reflect the diversity of the country. At Powerhouse, one of the things that I'm proudest of is 50% of the investments that we've made have gone into startups with founders and CEOs that are women, people of color, and LGBTQ founders. By 2040, the majority of this country will be people of color, and we need to adapt to that as we adapt to this transition to renewable energy. So all of that to say, I think youth, as renewable energy is the future, youth is the future, those two go together perfectly, and the fact that they're getting that software development talent, if we can couple that with renewable energy education, then we're unstoppable. Great, let's go to our next audience question. We have about five minutes left. We'll see if we can get our next three questions in. Welcome. Uh, how's it going? One thing that I'm curious about is whether or not there was a conscious decision within the green community to frame a lot of issues in terms of profit it seems like, as opposed to civic duty, profit as an incentive for making certain decisions always is the like rhetorical appeal people are using. Um, I could imagine a lot of incidental pitfalls from that being the sort of language that is put forth. Uh, would you guys like to talk about if there's a reason why you guys think it is that way or if you can foresee some issues coming from that? Thank you. Profit versus virtue as a motivator. Gia or? <laughs> yeah. I think it's an excellent point. Uh, I think that the reason that we frame things in economic terms is because uh, in order to make the investments necessary to deploy the amount of stuff needed to make the shift in our energy supply, it's a lot of money. And, and it's a lot of capital that needs to, needs to flow. And that capital 
does seek return. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that if you rewind 10 years ago, it was true to say that a wind farm or a solar plant uh, was more expensive than a natural gas facility. And so your ability to take a limited pot of capital and make change, uh, you clearly needed to come down a cost curve in order to be able to scale. So, um, so I think it's important to think about cost. And I think those two things, one is we need to drive investment to get stuff built, and we needed to come down a cost curve so that we could build more stuff, um, were, were the reasons for, for focusing on profit. Um, I totally agree. I think it's an excellent point because uh, I, I think that it comes back to, to the point I referenced earlier, which is around, around leadership for change. I, I think if we talked a bit more about the fact that we share one planet and that that creates an inherent responsibility to each other and to those that come after us, and, and that is the basis for thinking about a civic duty, um, I, I think is an excellent point. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome. All right. Uh, hello, I'm a high schooler at TL, and I was wondering, what are some projections for green energy on the grid in, say, 10 years in here in California or in the state or even in the world? Where are we looking at for the future? Emily Kirsch? Sure. So uh, California is in a unique position. They say that um, as California goes, so goes the country. And so we've always been a leader, and um, <clears throat> California... Uh, already has a 50% renewable energy goal. Um, there's talk of extending that to 100% renewable energy, um, I believe by 2030. Um, I think it'll happen before then. So, uh, and as California goes, so goes the country. And as costs continue to come down, and I think this gets to the importance of, of profit, it just makes financial sense. And so you could be the reddest governor in the reddest state. And if solar and wind is cheaper, then you do it because that's the best thing for your constituents. Um, you two back there, it's definitely happening in your lifetime. Thanks for that question. Let's go to our next question. Um, so you touched on this a little bit earlier. It's going into politics, so that might not be the best thing to end on. <laughs> but right now we have a president who doesn't really believe in climate change. Uh, and I see it optimistic where hopefully the um, at least this nation will change and go forward in a greener way. But if that doesn't happen... Where do you see us in like 10 to 15 or probably, I'd say, 50 years down the road? Uh, what if we do not go forward with this greener option? Where do you see us as a nation? Like what would we have to do to... Well, James Redford? Yeah. Um, if, if you think about the last year and it's, it, it, there's an a da daily assault on, for a lot of people, waking up to the news is a daily assault as new policies that are pushed that they, that they are offended by. That's just that's going on, um, for sure. But what you're also seeing is every time uh, there's a, there's a you know when when the president pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, there was a, a tremendous upwelling, a, a reaction against that. And what you see is that in, in the face of of a lack of leadership, people are stepping forward. It's this happening in our towns, in our cities, in our states. Uh, at the end of my film, the last line in my film is, if, if Washington isn't going to do this, we will. And it's true. So you don't have to worry about the future being green. That, that's inevitable. It's just a matter of how soon. And that's where our states and communities and all of us can make a real difference, regardless of what's happening in Washington. Greg Dalton has been talking with James Redford, 
director of the new HBO documentary, Happening. Emily Kirsch, co-founder and CEO of Powerhouse, which nurtures startup solar companies and others. Angie Schneider, co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy, a startup that's harnessing the power of rivers. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.